All right, so we are Front Page Pass, brought to you by Word Journeys, the literary world's hottest new podcast. Um, you guys have just got done watching an audiobook trailer of Blood Money by author Chris Rydell, and who happens to be a guest on today. So we can talk sh- a little bit about that. Yeah, he sure is. Chris has, um, <clears throat> you know, we've worked, or I worked with Chris on writing Blood Money, and, and we've been working with him for the past few months since. But it's such a, it's such a great story because it shows what one person can do mm-hmm to try to make things right mm-hmm. when every, everything is just off. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this case, he's talking about medical lab fraud. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, but it's a, it's a fascinating story. And, and to that point, um, you know, one of the things we did with his book that I would like to bring out for mm-hmm. our writers <clears throat> who are watching is we, we, took a, we took an investigative journalism type piece, which he wanted also to be fashioned as somewhat of a memoir. And we turn it in, and we use fiction writing techniques that you use to write memoir mm-hmm. in order to make it more of a, th- a white collar thriller, mm-hmm. which is how the book actually reads. And it truly does. Read Didn't that start way. out that way, but that's what mm-hmm. we made of it. And what we did are certain things like um, use dialogue. So mm-hmm. instead of having interviews with the subject in your book, you have conversations with them. You show their facial expressions. You show how, they, how their body language moves. And you talk about little incidental things they might be doing when they're talking to each other. And that feels just like a book. I mean, that just mm-hmm. feels like two, you know, a conversational thing. So you turn, you turn uh, passive dialogue into active conversation. Exactly. And it really fleshes it out as well, yeah. you know, from a dialogue standpoint yeah. and just having that, el- that whole element in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as Chris will tell us a little bit more of when we bring him on the mm-hmm. show a little bit later today, um, his, the stories behind <laughs> some of these cases and some of the people, including people who died because of bad medical tests, mm-hmm. Um, are absolutely riveting so it made it really possible to Mm -hmm. set up the chapters and one of the ways one of the things you do when you're writing fiction of course is you make you try to get the chapters to start a little bit differently you change the cadence and open for each of the chapters otherwise it gets really boring so we have chapters that open like slam it bang in your face Mm -hmm. some that open thoughtfully others that open with case studies Um, some somewhat introspective almost and and throughout all of it you see Chris, you see Chris trying to navigate this labyrinthine mm-hmm. um, maze called the justice system, and, yes. <laughs> and in particular the Department of Justice. Um, but but also you get the really human emotion of what it was like for him and his family, mm-hmm. what it was like for his, his the people he was working mm-hmm. with. Exactly. Um, the fact him and his family had to hire a secret for, a retired Secret Service agent as a security consultant because of the very real danger they mm-hmm. were facing because of becoming fraud fighters. And some of the events that you read in the book, you can't hardly believe that they are real yeah. you know, and even occurred. So. Yeah, and so when you do that when, with something that's nonfiction and you've used these kind of fiction mm-hmm. writing techniques, um, we used a lot of foreshadowing, we used echoing. Exactly. We used, uh, you know, cliffhanger endings. And gave it a lot of suspenseful tones as well, yes. And mm-hmm. um, But all the, all the factors of fiction, when you use them together, mm-hmm in a memoir it just makes a memoir better then mm-hmm. it feels like we're in the person's life mm-hmm. with them which is the whole point that's exactly. what a good memoir purpose. does you feel like you're living their life mm-hmm. with them or at least that portion of the life so we did mm-hmm. a lot of that with with blood money and and in our interview with chris um we're going to be asking you know talking to him about how he used some of those techniques specifically as well so i i'm really looking forward not only to him talking about mm-hmm. the story of blood money 
Mm-hmm. Um, but and some also, would chalk this up to but also a, the writing process. Yeah, and some would chalk this up to almost a modern day tale of David and Goliath, you could say, because this really is a story of a man that took you know took on the heroic act of taking on some of these big uh, big predatorial companies. So it's yeah, really and just this book, you know, and this one of these books is going to have a long shelf life. I mean, it just came exactly. out a few months ago in hardcover and paperback, published by Acorn Publishing, mm-hmm. and then the uh, the audio book has just dropped. Mm-hmm. Um, and he'll, Chris will talk a little bit more about the audiobook later. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I mean, when people, you know, all of us get medical lab tests, all of us do. And when people realize that, you know, the case, the amount of fraud that's involved, I mean, <laughs> it's Chris, you know, Chris and his attorney <clears throat> partners at last count have, have put more, have won more than $550 million worth of cases. So that's money that's gone into taxpayer mm-hmm. coffers. However, this this industry, this medical lab industry, r- defrauds taxpayers to the tune of a couple of billion dollars mm-hmm. a year. So it's, I mean, I can't wait to talk to him. <laughs> Me either. You know, <laughs> we ta- be... We've talked to him several times. I know, in our yeah. Capacity, we, yeah, we both worked with him. So it's, it's going to be fun listening to him in a full fledged interview where Absolutely. he just kind of takes yeah. the gloves and off. The and the content, yeah, and the content of this book, I mean, it's something that's just timeless, really. Yeah. Um, so. And it's also a perfect. It's also a perfect example of how writing is a. Uh, can be in a, well it's 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 a very socially responsible mm-hmm. part of writing um where well said. you know he's and this man absolutely is sitting on the head of a head of a pen um in fact it's almost like being on the head of a pen in front of a firing squad on behalf of the american taxpayer mm-hmm. that's exactly what being a fraud it's a good analogy yeah. or whistleblower mm-hmm. is but anyways we'll let chris tell the rest of the story yes. but i'm excited i am too tell. <laughs> yeah yeah, and then um, and then it's also I wanted to just tell share yes. with everybody something came in the mail this, the other day. Yeah, so so uh, six years ago, Stevie Salas, who was Rod Stewart's lead guitarist and also Mick Jagger's years ago, um, uh, he went on his first tour with Rod Stewart, and he wrote a book about that year, which is 1988, called mm-hmm. um, When We Were the Boys. <clears throat> and then Stevie and I worked on the book together. It came out in 2014 in paperback in the United States. The thing about Stevie Salas is that he's actually much more famous in Japan and mm-hmm. in Europe than he is in the United States. Quite the fan base. In fact, last year he and a singer-songwriter partner were the number one pop rock duo in Japan, mm-hmm. which is pretty amazing considering Stevie's 58 years old. That doesn't happen very often when you're over 35. No, I would say it's really monumental. Yeah. So anyways, um, with when they went number one in Japan, our agent... Dana Newman got a call from um, a Japanese publisher saying we want the book, and which of course is any writer's dream because yeah. we had we, so we basically got another book contract. We had to do almost nothing, um, and the other day it arrived. So this is the Japanese version of When We Were the Boys. I'd love to read to you, I would love to read to all of you, but I can't read Japanese. Unfortunately, um, we'll and, work on and it. And then this is the back cover, which is Stevie <laughs> playing with Rod Stewart in 1988. Um, so. It's it's always a thrill to see your book put out in another language. Absolutely, um, that's quite the accomplishment. Yeah, yeah. In my career, um, I've been really fortunate because this is the fifth foreign mm-hmm. language I've had a book published in. Um, but it's really cool. It's and just, for it to blow up again after all these years, I mean, and, that and, just goes to show. Yeah, that. and blow up is exactly what it did. <laughs> the book was number one memoir in Japan mm-hmm. for the first four weeks after it came out, mm-hmm. and it's been out about two months now. So. Um, yeah, but it's always cool to just, I don't care who you are as a writer, I don't care how long or how short amount of time you've been writing, when you open, when you get, go to the mail and you see your book in another language, um, that's just, that's a really neat mm-hmm. thing, you know. Um, it's almost surreal. Yeah, 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 so, anyhow, but, um, I just wanted to share that, and then, um, 
So anyways, uh, let's get on with the main part of our show um, and interview Chris Rydell. Okay, well, Alexa, you know, earlier in our show today, we were talking about using fiction writing fiction writing characteristics or techniques when writing memoir. Yes, you elaborated without, on that. Yeah, mm-hmm. without without changing any of the truth, obviously, in the memoir, you know, but using fiction writing techniques because mm-hmm. what it just makes it a more interesting read, a more engaging exactly. read, and, and mm-hmm. the and the subjects of the memoir then become characters. Yeah, it really helps flesh things out. Relate to them. Mm-hmm. So that is exactly what we did with um, the book Blood Money, mm-hmm. which is by Chris Rydell. And, and Chris and I worked together on this book, and that's what, exactly what we did. We took, we took his memoir and put some fiction writing characteristics to it and turned it into a really compelling book that's gotten nothing but great reviews since you know mm-hmm. since the book came out and, several months ago. And not only is it a memoir, it truly reads like a thriller, like a Hollywood style thriller, honestly. And it's um it's white collar crime thriller, right? Exactly, yes. Yeah, and and the book just re- <laughs> the book has just come out in audiobook form. Mm-hmm. But what's even better and more exciting for us today is we have we have Chris Rydell with us today. So, um, without further ado, Chris, welcome to our show. Good morning, and thank you. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for joining us. And um, I mean, it's been it's really fun personally for for me to have you on the show because it's been two years now since um, you and I first came together and discussed the idea of taking this manuscript you had and making it into a full thriller style book. Um, And um, first of all, you know, first of all, tell us tell us a little bit about yourself and and about what what prompted you to write Blood Money? Uh, I'm uh, in Silicon Valley, and I uh, spent uh, my professional career. I founded five healthcare companies and served as the chairman and CEO of all of them. And uh, with my last healthcare company, uh, I started it in 2003. It was a clinical laboratory. It's something everybody has to go to and have done from time to time. Uh, we do blood tests, urine tests, whatever a doctor would order uh, when you go to see them. And what I would, was shocked to find is that there was just naked profiteering and illegal activity designed to fleece taxpayers and to prevent uh, legitimate companies from being able to succeed in the marketplace. There were these two giant companies named by Wall Street as the Blood Brothers, Quest and LabCorp. And their practices were so predatory that they drove a lot of companies just out of business. And then a lot of companies, when they would drive them to break of financial ruin, they'd buy them for a very cheap price. And I found when we started uh, Hunter Laboratories, Hunter, the laboratory was named after my youngest son, Hunter, that we really couldn't survive in that environment. And so I was left with three choices. The first was to knowingly violate federal and state law and try and compete with the Blood Brothers. The second was to close down the business, uh, lay off 150 wonderful employees, uh, and, and just write off most of our life savings. And the third, the one I ultimately chose, was to try and stop the frauds and stop taxpayers from being leased and level the playing field for honest competitors. So by so <laughs> to jump ahead a little bit from that, so what you've been doing for the last almost 15 years 
is really going to bat for on behalf of the taxpayer who's who's um, you know whose taxpayer dollars have been um, you know used fraudulently or through billing practices um, used fraudulently by these companies is that correct that is correct and I, I got into it to try and protect my own business but then I found there was so much healthcare fraud it was just, it's just everywhere in the healthcare system because so I've, I've done quite a bit of it in companies now unrelated to me. I sold uh, Hunter Heart and Hunter Labs four years ago. And since that, I'm continuing to investigate companies and pursue them. And usually I get a call from someone saying, Chris, you know, I've known about you for a long time. I've read about you. Uh, there's this company I'm involved with that I'm trying to compete with that's doing the following. What do you think? And that's generally today how I you know, find other companies. But it takes a lot of research and investigation. You have to come forward to the government with un, uh, material, uh, non-public information. You just can't read about something in the press. You just can't get somebody to say, hey, Chris, this company's doing that. You've got to find emails, uh, letters. Uh, you've got to get people willing to actually testify about these activities. And most people just, they don't want to be anywhere near any potential litigation. Particularly if it involves Quest and LabCorp or a big company because they're going to destroy you. They're going to certainly try. And I feel like doing something that you did would require a lot of determination, sacrifice, and resilience. So I'm just kind of curious, like from an investigative standpoint, this is kind of what you were talking about. What skills did you have to acquire in order to help build this case up against the Blood Brothers exactly? Like what was that whole process really, like? That's a really good question. Like, yeah. I had to learn how to be a detective. Nothing that prepared me in business to do this kind of investigation. Uh, but I had to develop skills where I could interview people and get them comfortable with opening up. Um, I had to try and get people on the telephone who did not know me. And, you know, when you mentioned, you know, I'd like to talk to you about XYZ company, you know, most of them said, no, thanks. I had to develop the skills to be able to get them to trust me and then to open up. Uh, I had to learn how to go through the SEC filings for these companies, which are filed under penalty of perjury and in which they lay out uh, the risks for the company and their financials and, and, and to look at it from year to year to year and see if anything jumps out as having changed. So it, it, it's tough. It's not easy. Yeah. And it doesn't sound it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it doesn't but, sound like an easy job. But just, just to, you know, just, but, but the fact is you have, you, you know, you, you've had some victories. I mean, you've had mm -hmm. some defeats, but you've also had some victories. And last time I asked you, I believe you had told me that that your your actions um, and, and your litigation has resulted in the returning of more than five hundred and fifty mm -hmm. million dollars to taxpayer coffers, um, including the big one 10, 10 years ago in California, where um, you return your your actions led to the return of two hundred and forty one million dollars. Um, that's a lot of money. Could you, mm -hmm. could you, I mean, that's got to give you a great deal of satisfaction on one hand, but one thing that struck me when I've talked to you about this over the past year, especially, is how you still don't feel that you've done enough 
Um, and could you elaborate on that? Because to me, to me, going out there and putting your putting your neck on the line time and again and, and returning five hundred fifty million dollars to taxpayers to me that sounds like a huge victory. Mm-hmm. Well, it is. Uh, there's no question about it. It is, but it's a fraction of what the government should have recovered. When you file a whistleblower lawsuit, uh, it goes under seal by a federal judge, and the Department of Justice determines whether they think it has enough merit for them to, quote, intervene, take it over, and prosecute it. In, in my experience, uh, when an attorney general would work with us and share discovery, um, we did very well. But that was only on a couple of occasions. But more generally, what the Department of Justice does is, okay, thank you. We don't need you anymore. Go away. And we'll take over from here. And when that happened, which was 85 90% of the time, it didn't go anywhere. We would get small amounts of settlements. Uh, but the Department of Justice does not have the mindset that it wants to stop taxpayers from being fleet. It has the mindset that we want to have a, quote, affordable civil settlement. We're not going to put anybody in jail, no matter how egregious it is. Um, in all of my cases, only one person has been criminally indicted. Uh, and and how, many, how, many could, how many could have been? Oh, gosh, probably 20. Wow. wow. And this this <laughs> That's fellow substantial. wasn't even a CEO. He was the marketing guy. So it's like, why this guy? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> And, and, you know, like, I mean, here's an example of how frustrating it is. Uh, there was a company called Boston Heart Diagnostics, and they were bribing doctors and never billing patients with copay and deductible. So there was no, nothing to stop a doctor from ordering these very expensive tests that could go to $3,000 uh, because a patient was never going to see a bill. And by doing that, they ordered indiscriminately on every patient and basically made their money up, you know, from Medicare and insurance companies. Um, and even then they pay the doctors to order them. So the government spent four years investigating Boston Heart. And then even though they had recently prosecuted four other companies for exactly the same behavior for us, so we got a call and said, well, we're not going to intervene. Well, why not? Well, it was not a unanimous decision. But what that meant, and we were actually delighted, was that we were free to prosecute the case on behalf of the government. So we immediately did the things the government hadn't found time to do. You know, we took some depositions, we sent out a lot of uh, discovery materials, and uh, all of a sudden, out of the blue, we get a call from the Department of Justice saying, well, we've just cut a deal with Boston Heart. Uh, we're gonna settle for $30 million, but they should have, I mean, the amount that was stolen was many multiples of that, well into the hundreds of millions of dollars. And the statute calls for three penalties of three times the amount that was stolen, so that there's a disincentive for fraudsters. But with DOJ, the way they operate, uh, fraud is very profitable. The risk-reward analysis that criminals use says, do it. If in the unlikely event I get caught, you know, I'll pay 10 or 20 cents in the dollar and go about my merry way. Wow. And when the bribing comes, 
when the bribing comes into play, I mean, these companies pretty much have impunity from, you know, any sort of penalty. Yeah. So, they, they, yeah. Nobody got fired. Nobody lost, you know, nobody lost their bonus. Uh, and, it, you know, these, these frauds were the actual business models of these companies. I mean, they were designed at the top. And it's how these fraudsters grew their companies and made their own, you know, profits and, and bonuses and salaries. Uh, and in researching the book and looking at other big settlements, uh, in just about every case, particularly in the pharmaceutical industry, here are these huge companies, and they get caught time and time and time again, uh, you know, signing settlement agreements and consent agrees with the Department of Justice. And every time they don't get fired by CEOs, their compensation goes up. It's yeah. just crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's just so, wrong. So, you know, Jay takes the, the, the term that it has to not pay. It's going to continue. And the best way to do that is throw some people in jail. Exactly, yeah. And I feel and the like... Idea, uh, the, the last chapter in the book is my are my suggestions for what the Department of Justice can do to stop white-collar fraud cold. Um and one of them, it's very simple. If the company enters into a settlement uh, settlement agreement or they're convicted at trial, um, for the length of time the fraud lingered, which is generally around seven to 10 years, you recoup from the board of directors and top management all the monies they were paid by that company. And if you did that, then you'd have the board of directors hiring regulatory compliance people reporting to them instead of, you know, the company CEO. And I think that would make a huge change and it wouldn't cost taxpayers anything. I feel like one way to counter a lot of this too would be somebody in your shoes, a fraud fighter, a potential whistleblower, for example, to um, possibly take inspiration from your work and what you've done and what you have accomplished and to start, you know, bringing th- these cases to to them. So I, that kind of makes me want to expand a bit on your uh, particular chapter in your book, uh, The Tips for Whistleblowers, I believe is what it's called. So if you could kind of expand on that a little bit and explain um, kind of the gist of that chapter and why you wanted to in- uh, include it in, in, your, in your book, essentially. Um, just to kind of give tips for people that are needing to unveil that level of corruption. I wrote this chapter because um, I want whistleblowers to understand the risks to themselves and the likelihood of success, which is less than being hit by lightning. Very rare to have a decision like we had in California that was a home run for the industry and for for taxpayers. Um, But understand... If you choose to be a whistleblower, your life will never be the same. When the, when the big companies find out who has brought this lawsuit on behalf of the government, they do everything they can to destroy whistleblowers. Most of them, the majority of them, end up uh, unemployed, blackballed so that they can't get employment, bankrupt, and divorced. It's just awful what these companies are allowed to do. Yeah, there are protections in the law. Uh, and in, in our case, uh, Quest and LabCorp went and do an insur- a huge insurance company and said, look, if you'll take Hunter Labs out of network, we'll voluntarily reduce our reimbursement rates by 10%. And they had an almost 
duopoly in the industry. That was 70% of this insurance company's outpatient laboratory revenue. So of course they said, sure. You lose a major insurance company, that means patients have to pay more when you're not in network. It was a dagger to the heart. And we were just bleeding out from that point forward. Uh, and in fact, at the time of the settlement, we were literally two weeks away from both uh, professional and personal bankruptcy. We would have lost everything, which is what happens to most whistleblowers. I met one who had a very big settlement, but before it was awarded, he was living under a bridge. Yeah, it's terrible. And I went to uh, the California Assistant Attorney General who we were working with on this case during the settlement. And I said, please put as part of the settlement agreement, they have to get us back in this network, which they could be. He says, I'm not going to do that. I go, well, what about the legal protections I'm supposed to have? Oh, you're making enough money. Don't worry about it. That's, that's a crazy mindset. Yeah. Um, I wish I could get the opportunity to meet with somebody at the Department of Justice. But, you know, they treat whistleblowers very badly. In those cases. That's kind of that's uh, sadly yeah. ironic in that the Justice Department's supposed to be about justice, which is about truth telling. Yeah, yeah, we do all the work. We, you know, we write the motions, we go through the documents, we make it really easy for the attorneys, the attorney generals who are, you know, they're really busy. They got lots of stuff to do, and here we're offering the best lawyers around to do this work for them for free. You would think we would jump at that. Yeah. And that kind of showcases, you know, for whistleblowers, the, the risk and reward ratio of it, which is kind of like what I was going to kind of prefaces my next question. I was going to ask, honestly, like without giving too much away that's in the book, um, what was going through your mind at the time when you realized the physical dangers, potential physical dangers that you or your family could possibly be facing when these fraudsters did get wind of you exposing them? And is that something that made you want to fight harder or did that deter you in any way or... It's chilling. Uh, my wife, Marcia, did not want me to file this lawsuit at all. She was afraid that uh, there might be some retribution that would affect her children. And so she insisted, finally, I wore her down after four months and said, I just think we have to do this. Um, and so she said, okay, but I want you to hire somebody to come in here and give us guidance on how we can protect ourselves. So we hired an ex-secret service agent. And he gave us some very good but general comments. Be observant. Look on your street. See if you see cars that just don't belong. See if you see people loitering around. He said there are devices now where they can be half a block away and record everything you say. Um, and I oh, later learned from those that, in fact, they did have people parked at their house going through their garbage. They were there all day. So, yeah. And the level of, I, of, then the I level of paranoia. I every document related to the lawsuit or my personal financials. Now, in the book, in the book, we we hit on another, um, we hit on another uh, very human, uh, human cost toll of, of all of this. 
and um, and that's that's the patients themselves. Um, you tell a story mm. in the first chapter of the book about Daria and Wisekal that is absolutely bone chilling. Yes. Um, and and that and and that's one thing I want to bring out because we you know you you talk a lot about this in the book where where once one you know eyes are focused on um, the blood brothers and others um, you know doing all of this. Uh, fraudulent behavior to the tunes of millions and billions of dollars. But the human cost, as you alluded to in the book, uh, it is that by taking smaller, um, smaller companies out of business, and they're, it's decreasing the quality of service. And in some cases, Darian Weisakal being a perfect example, it costs people their lives. Could you speak to how this these predatory practices are hurting the quality uh, are hurting the quality of the medical tests that we receive? Yes, I, I'd be happy to. Uh, the big labs are more concerned with uh, the shareholder price than they are with anything else. And so if they can cut a service and will save a quarter of a penny a share uh, in profits, they're going to do it. And I mean, there are examples in the book, this poor woman, um, She's 30 years old. Uh, she had uh, two young children, and she had her uh, pap smear was misread by LabCorp, and uh, she ended up dying a very painful death with her two young children by her side in the hospital bed. And the jury found that LabCorp was just negligent, and she, she won an award. And then as I dug a little further, I found out that both LabCorp and Quest allocate 20% of the revenue for pap smears from legal costs because it happens so frequently. In my entire career running clinical laboratories, we've never had any charge for legal costs or any question about the accuracy of our pap smears or any other test. Um, if you have appropriate quality control in place, you're going to catch things. You know, not every test comes out perfect. You're going to catch things, but you have to look hard. Um, yeah, and you know, to what we had alluded to earlier in the book about using fiction writing techniques, mm -hmm. right, his subject matter made it pretty easy. And mm -hmm. yeah, and it was, you know, and it, it does, it, the book does read like a white collar thriller because mm. there's cases like this. I mean, just, they just tear your heart out. And at the same time, you're talking about secret, needing a secret service, uh, former secret service agent. Exactly, to yeah. Protection. But there's all sorts of other, there's all sorts of other amazing, at least amazing to me, examples you give about offshore accounts, about uh, people being, you know, just threatened to be, you know, murdered and all sorts of yes. other things. I mean, this is really... Um, it makes for great reading, but but to be in your shoes, it, it, it must have been just absolutely harrowing sometimes when you were you know when you were, when you were working with your attorney partners Neil McCarthy and Justin Berger. It was, it was, but I just felt in my heart it was the right thing to do, and that the facts were clear, the law was clear, we would win in the end. I later learned. We only won because we happened to get a California assistant attorney general who worked with us. If that hadn't happened, it would have gone nowhere. I mean, there's an example. Uh, 
we wrote the subpoena and we said, give us all of your fee schedules because we wanted to show how low their fees were compared to what they were charging Medi-Cal. Medi-Cal is entitled to the lowest charge. That's what the lawsuit was about. And these companies were charging Medi-Cal 20 to 40 times what they were offering the same tests to physicians and insurance companies for. So uh, we subpoenaed their fee schedule. And what we got was a computer printout that was absolute gibberish. And had it not been for me, an insider, who knows what the fee schedules look like that go to doctors, that would have probably been the end of it. So, you know, we, we sent out letters in another, we sent out in another subpoena examples of their fee schedules given to doctors. And we said, we demanded, we turn them in this format. And then we got what we needed. But without an industry insider helping these government attorneys who know nothing about the laboratory industry, uh, you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah, and one, and you know, and I, and I know, in, in working with you, that um, you know, it's one we can sit, we can sit here and trumpet your successes, which you've had quite a few in this, and you're doing something that is, I mean, it's one of those things that's so behind the scenes, no one would ever know unless you wrote a book about it. But, um, but what I also know, and in having gotten to know you, that I think is really special is you're one of those healthcare CEOs that absolutely cares uh, about the customer slash patient mm -hmm. so much that you made darn sure at Hunter that you that you all provided the very best medical lab tests that you could. Um, and could you could you just talk about that, that, that part of yourself that just has that level of care for the patient mm -hmm. or the client and and also and, and how and how much you miss that now, not being able to do it because of what the Blood Brothers did to your company, for instance, mm -hmm. or forced you into doing? It's just a part of me, to be honest, and to look out for people. When you're in healthcare, you're dealing with human lives. Uh, I mean, one example, very simple example. Uh, the Blood Brothers, about 5% of the time, one out of 20, the test result never comes back. That's because they're shipping specimens all over the country to laboratories that they bought. They'll run this kind of test or they'll run that kind of test. And they have integrated all these computer systems that don't always integrate so well. Uh, or the specimen uh, sat in the refrigerator and just never got tested. 5% uh, of the time, if you have a critical result, that patient could die. At Hunter Labs, we treated a lost specimen like a lost child. It just didn't happen. And uh, what, 15, or, yeah, 15 years we ran it, it happened a couple of times. And we would immediately notify the patient and we'd send somebody to their house to redraw the specimen and we wouldn't charge it for the test because we made mistakes. That's just the way I am and the way I think any uh, good laboratory uh, CEO should feel. And most of them do. But they get run out of business. Mm. Yeah. Well, how he uh, operates is exactly how people should you know, yeah, take notice. Absolutely. But, um, 
But oh, I want to ask a little bit about the writing process itself here. So I don't know if when you did write this book, did you sit down and have like a uh, have to sequence out each event as they unfolded? Did you kind of build an outline or just start writing whatever aspects of the story came to mind, or did you just go about it chronologically? Like how did you how did you guys go about writing this? Alexa, I had no training in writing. Uh, I was with a science major in college, and from there I went into the healthcare industry. So I, just, I didn't know what to do, but I knew that the stories that I went through of this traumatic frostbiting journey uh, should be first unbelievable, and people are going to have a hard time accepting that they're true. So I just sat down and, you know, chronologically wrote it out, and when it was done. Uh, I, I sent it, to, I had uh, somebody send it to some uh, people who review books um, you know, before we did it with it. And what came back was, uh, this is a great investigative journalism piece, but it's not a thriller. And that's when I called huh. <laughs> <laughs> and, To put it simply, and, yeah. And we spent a year rewriting it, which was really a a wonderful experience working with you, Bob. Yeah, and I hope I hope the day comes we get to do another book. That's for sure. <laughs> and then when it we was were finished, the evolution I gave it of to it my as well. attorney to review, and he said, "You can't publish this with what you say about the Department of Justice. They're going to throw out every case we have with them." So we then rewrote it a third time, where we give the facts about what the DOJ did without giving any editorial comment. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, too, if it had to be rewritten at any point and if there was any setbacks or changes and so forth from like a legal standpoint, if, you know, things have been altered throughout or. or... Yeah, well, this is one of those books that you must get mm -hmm. legally. Vetted. Exactly. And luckily for us, we had two Chris's his uh -huh. attorney partners built in mm -hmm. to do the vetting. Because you have to tiptoe around with just well, standard memoir. Right. But, so well, something right, well, like this, but, I can see how you really would have. Right. To, but the thing um, is, when a book goes to a publisher, especially something, a topical nonfiction exactly. like this. The, the publisher's attorneys will vet it. Mm -hmm. um, usually it's a cursory vetting. Yeah. But in this time, this this case, we had to go, we had to go much further than that because, you know, one, and we'll talk about this before we, uh, before we, while we're still talking with Chris, we'll ask you this in a minute. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll ask Chris in a minute about the act, still active cases. I mean, this book's written, it's been out for a few mm -hmm. months. The new audiobook just came out, everybody. But the fact is, these, the, uh, Chris and Justin and Neil are still working on mm -hmm. other cases that are Actively. active right now. Right. Yeah, but uh, but anyways, to answer your question another way, um, so yeah, so I got the manuscript from Chris, mm -hmm. and we we talked several times. I mean, we had weekly meetings to to go over things, and um, I I looked right at it and I go, you know, fiction writing time where you where you set the scenes, you know exactly mm -hmm. when to bring people on stage. Mm -hmm. You you alter your chapters you you alter your chapter open so some might start kind of thoughtfully some dramatically some with you know action right okay which is exactly how a thriller is written mm -hmm. and then um, and then but it was easy for what was easy for me is I every time I read the story I just went damn I mean my <laughs> God the right this person dying are you kidding mm -hmm. because of the test. And then, um, and then some of the you know some of the dramatics around some of the things Chris the choices Chris had to make, but also the heartbreaking. Just I can't even imagine having to sit at the dinner table with my wife 
who's my business partner and and look at the very fact that because of of these unscrupulous the companies mm-hmm. our our life savings and our business and everything we've worked for for many years is going to go down mm-hmm. the drain that in itself creates a human element mm-hmm. of, that you can't get away from chris's book definitely gets the blood boiling when you just right. see the level of cor- corruption right. that is being unveiled so i feel like that's why yeah. so it resonated with so many people i mean you can get on there and see reviews where people refer to him as a, a knight yeah. in medieval times essentially so, somebody so, read that comment right so. so what i did is i just restructured <laughs> it and made right. it into these scenes and then of course mm-hmm. chris would chris obviously would take it and then just go okay dial it back a little bit bob or this mm-hmm. works and um and that's and that's how we did it and then we worked in we worked in dialogue and mm-hmm. and so forth but um it was but it was a really thrilling process mm-hmm. and what was really fun is when we got to, when it came time to rewrite mm-hmm. and chris started rewriting it's like you were you were so you you improved so much as a writer in one year mm-hmm. it was unbelievable well you taught me well no you you just knew you just <laughs> you had it you just you just knew what to do you know what to do i mean it was great was writing this um, therapeutic for you, or was it kind of reliving some of these these events? It was very therapeutic. Okay. Yeah, this was my chance to tell my story, um, and I, you know I think it's I'm hoping somebody uh, with some authority will you know either publish us well, go to DOJ and say, come on guys, sit down with this guy and let's you know let's talk about some of his suggestions. They're all simple. And, you know, if, if they're going to reduce taxpayers being fleeced, uh, we should do that. That's what we're here for. But that hasn't happened yet. And, but interestingly, Kamala Harris is a very close friend of Neil McCarthy, my attorney. And I'm hoping that at some point Neil will be able to get us to sit down with Kamala. That well, that would be nice. And I should I should mention that Kamala Kamala has the honor of having the top cover blurb on this book. She does, yes. And it was really interesting because, you know, she was not yet vice president mm-hmm. when the book first came out just last, you know, late last fall. But um, it's, it's kind of neat. It's kind of neat little synchronicity that happened. It there. really is, yeah, yes. Yeah. Kind of the and, timing of it all. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so going, going back to what I was saying before, um, you know, books out. We hear about all these cases in the book, um, the wins, the losses, etc. But you still have active cases. Um, so obviously, without divulging any details that you can't divulge, can you tell us briefly just some of the work that you and Neil and Justin are continuing to do on behalf of taxpayers? Sure, sure. It's the very frauds that we exposed, and our biggest, one of our biggest successes, went to trial. There were these. Uh, really clever fraudsters who were two sales guys and a laboratory person got together and said, look, let's create a cardiovascular disease panel like the Boston Heart and like we had. Uh, we'll pay the doctors a lot of money to order them. And we'll say it's for packaging and handling asbestos. Well, that's actually included in what the doctor is reimbursed for the office visit. So that's, that's double payment. And then they pay them far more than what it actually costs. They'd say, Doc, how much money do you want to order our panels? Uh, we'll give you 20 bucks for packaging and handling. If that's not enough, we'll split it with another lab and they'll pay you 20 bucks. And they would take it up to $80. And if that's not enough, we'll put you on our speakers bureau and we'll pay you a lot of money whether you speak or not. And, and then uh, they would never bill patients. 
they say, so order around all your patients. And um, they went to trial and these, they were in the South, they were in South Carolina, and they didn't believe a Southern jury would convict them. Well, they did. Uh, and so it was a $114 million judgment against them. And they all bankruptcy shortly thereafter. And this was big news, you know, in the press. And so even today, we have a public company where it's out from under seal now, so I can talk about it. It's doing the same thing. It's a public company. Like, how in the world can a public company that has, you know, to justify to its shareholders, they're doing this? It's, yeah. it's just my mind. It's pretty infuriating. Yeah. Hmm. So we're, we're on, we're on front page pass talking about blood money with, with Chris Rydell and blood money is published by Acorn publishing late last fall. Originally it's available in hardback and, and paperback, but now, uh, right. Just, just, just now the audiobook the audiobook has dropped. And so the audiobook is also available. And I know, Chris, you had a fun experience um, with the audiobook process. Could you tell mm. us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, actors can't find work until recently because you know, the, the Broadway was shut down. Nobody was making movies. And so we were very fortunate to get a Broadway-trained actor as the narrator of the book. And this guy is so good. I mean, I just love listening to him. You know, they have to pause and inflect. They can speak uh, with a Southern accent, with a New Jersey accent. Uh, I think I was just wonderful. So I, I really have enjoyed working with him, and, and I love the audiobook. So your voiceover, so your, so, so the voice, because I've only heard that, to this point, I've only heard the book trailer. But so the, so the voiceover um, actor, he, so he went with accents for different regions. Different characters. Yes. yes. People Which was oh, that's great. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. It's something I was specifically looking for in the mirror. Uh -huh. <laughs> bring more life to the, you know, particularly the, the sovereign judge, you know, where we hear lots of you all. And, yeah. And he captured the judge perfectly. Well, y'all, you're talking to us in, in, from our Kentucky studio, Chris. <laughs> yeah, gosh, my voice is probably reminiscent of that judge, I would say. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, but <laughs> but yeah, um, that is really neat, though. It kind of just shows the versatility and just like you said, it just really brings the book to life almost, kind of so, puts you there. So I guess a, a big a question, what, if, what have you learned about yourself from mm. the experience of being a fraud fighter and also from writing a book about it? Uh, I'm a pretty unique guy. I mean, anybody that wants to, you know, file a whistleblower lawsuit has to be kind of crazy because the odds against you are so stacked. Um, but I'm also a very determined guy. And I just, you know, I believed in my heart it was the right thing to do for the industry and for taxpayers. And the only way is to potentially save our company. So that's why I got involved. But then I found... Uh, I found a passion for trying to stop these fraudsters from basically ripping off, you know, taxpayers. Yeah. I, I'd much rather see a company compete on the quality of its services than the amount of the kickbacks or bribes. 
Yeah. Well, I, I was going to ask specifically, I mean, for someone out there that has been put in a similar situation as to what you are, I mean, is there any advice uh, or positive advice more so that you would give um, a potential whistleblower? Oh, yes. I have a whole chapter on that. There are things you can do to protect yourself. I think yes. That. First thing is ask yourself this. Is this fraud so obvious that a 12-year-old can understand it? <laughs> yeah. Which is yes then you go forward. If it's complicated, justice is going to look at it and go, uh, uh-uh. <laughs> so it's got to be a really obvious problem. Uh, the second thing is uh, get all of your documents, all of your evidence out of the company before you do anything because you're going to need that stuff. You can't go. If you go to the company and say, you know, what we're doing here, I, I, I question whether it's legal or not, you're going to get fired immediately. Oh, that wow. happens okay. over and over and mm-hmm. over again because the companies want to protect the business model that has made them so successful. Then the next step is really important. Uh, you will be attacked. So uh, try to leave the company and get a good job. But at the same time, there are a cottage industry has sprung up of uh, excuse me, litigation funders. And what they do is if they like your lawsuit, they'll invest anywhere from $1 million to $5 million. And they'll take a percentage of whatever the award is. But that money's non-recourse. It's yours. You know, if it doesn't go anywhere, they're out that money. So go to a couple of those. If they think it's good enough for them to invest millions of dollars into, it's a great indication you've got a great case. And if they're not... You better think about, well, maybe I don't have all the stuff I need. Yeah, definitely be prepared for it. Well, that's well said, Chris. Toughest question we'll ask you today. What do you do for fun? (laughs) Uh, The older I get, the less fun things I can do, (laughs) Bob. My wife and I love to travel, and, you know, we're going to be able to do that again, uh, actually beginning in two weeks. And, and, uh, you know... uh, we, uh, we work out and we weight train and uh, enjoy our kids. And... Yeah. All right. Well, it's been an absolute delight to have you on our show today. Yes. And, um, and please, I mean, for, for me personally, I mean, this, you know, it's been two years since we started working together and, and to see this book continue to get the reviews it's getting and impact people mm-hmm. and, and I just can't wait to I just can't wait to see how the audiobook does. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, thank you so much for being on with us, Chris. And once again, to everybody, Blood Money is available through bookstores nationwide. It's available on mm-hmm. all online booksellers, and also in both hardback and paperback form. And then the audiobook is also now available on on um, on audiobook platforms, and you can also buy that off of Amazon. Okay, once again, thank you again to Chris Rydell and we're and uh, and good luck good with your you. good luck with everything in the future to you. Thank you, Bob and Alexa. It's been great. Yes, it has. I really enjoy both of you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Same to you. <laughs> All right. Wow, that was quite an interview. He I would say he so. had a lot to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really compelling. And I mean it's just kind of amazing to see like I've said before, uh, just the level of corruption that he exposed um, throughout his career and just even hearing it, you know, in the flesh is pretty, pretty crazy, honestly. Yeah. And what I, what I admire about Chris and his attorney partners, mm-hmm. Neil and Justin, is they're still going at it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is like his, mm-hmm. I don't know, his 
fourth career or something mm-hmm. that it's actually <laughs> yeah. become more of a career yeah thing. i would say so but, but what i really love about uh, what i really love about chris too that he brought out in this mm-hmm. is that he's fighting for the taxpayer i mean mm-hmm. this is you know and it started, he doesn't have to be doing yeah this. and as you can see it started out as something that was somewhat personal you know i mean his business was was tanking because of this on behalf of these predatorial companies and then he when he re- realized <clears throat> you know how uh, expansive this was and how many people this was affecting it really became greater than him so to speak yeah. you know so well we've talked about we've talked with and about chris rydell and blood money for most of the show but we'd like to close today's show with our in our usual way mm-hmm. um our you know our uh, operations manager at word journeys aaron james has prepared done her thing and prepared the new york times yep top five list for fiction and nonfiction. so why don't you take away i will non-fiction? take it away with reading combined print and ebook nonfiction. so killing the mob is at number one by bill o'reilly and uh, martin um Doggard. uh number two is yearbook by seth rogan which is new this week number three is billy eilish by billy eilish number four is the premonition by michael lewis it is two weeks on the list. And number five is What Happened to You by uh, Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey. So. Well, that's an impressive list. It is a very impressive best-selling list. Best-selling <laughs> authors yeah, I would that say we've so. seen before in many Some ways. Some pretty big names on there. Yeah. Certainly. And then I have, and then I'll read the, the combined print and ebook fiction list. Um, number one, this is interesting, is While Justice Sleeps by Stacey Abrams, and yes, that's the same Stacey Abrams, who's a very prominent politician and mm-hmm. lawyer out of Georgia. She write, she she wrote a novel, and it's, it just debuted at number mm-hmm. one, so what a great start for her. Um, number two on the list is Suli by John Grisham. It's wonderful to see a John Grisham book back on the list, you know, because yes. he, in the ni- 80s and 90s and early 2000s, he was almost a book a year. And then he slowed down a little bit, but he's got another one out, and it's opening. Oh, he's totally two. regained traction. And such a great legal legal writer. Speaking mm-hmm. of legal thrillers, yeah. Um, the last thing he told me by Laura Dave. Um, that's number three, and then another another fixture on the on the beach read summer read list. Jennifer Weiner is out with that summer um, by Jennifer Weiner. New this week. It just it just entered the charts, uh, and Jennifer, like I said, she's got five or six uh, New York Times bestsellers. She does. Um, summer <clears throat> reads. She's a great summer read writer, beach read writer. So I'm really curious as to how much of that summer is talking about that summer of 2020. Yeah, exactly. Or if it's about something else. And then um, the last one. Oh, this will be fun for beach readers and summer readers. People we meet on vacation by Emily Henry. So those are your New York Times um, top five. Uh, ebook print combined fiction for this week and um so i guess that's it for our podcast we've enjoyed it hope you guys stick around and be sure to follow us on all of our social uh instagram in particular we tend to post tips and tricks about writing uh post our podcast updates on clients we've been working with and everything else you can catch us on youtube um and various other platforms as far as listening to the podcast is concerned front page pass so um, right and don't forget to take the feeling of this uh, of the interview and the, our mm. conversation with chris Rydell away with you today and get yourself yes. a copy of blood money Absolutely. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good day, everyone.